Well, Don says that the kids' minute is a tough act to follow, but I don't know if he knows what it's like to go after himself. (laughs) Thank you, choir, for sharing with us this morning. Reflecting on Christ the King Sunday, I was moved, even sitting there listening and trying to sing along as I was learning words to a song, of what it means not just to say things that we believe to be true, but to be swept up in a new reality, to be swept up as one swept up in a song, even stating things that we believe to be true, when swept up in them, they take place in my life unlike any plain fact ever could. And so perhaps we come here today with a statement of beliefs, able to articulate the things that we believe to be true in our lives, in our world, and about the one whom we worship. But as we know, the longer that we follow Christ, what I'm learning more and more in my life is that simply stating that which we believe to be true is ultimately not enough. That stating a list of facts, even with all that we can muster, will not sustain us. Because as the day changes, the new challenge emerges as the night inevitably overshadows. It will not be enough in those days, and so the Lord invites us to sing a song, to let the truths that we believe about him and about who we are, to wrap us up and guide us somewhere that we never could guide ourselves. So as Helen alluded to this morning, we come to this space with a mixture of emotions, joy and celebration, heartache and pain and everything in between. My prayer this week as I've read through this scripture in anticipation of being able to share what God has given me, the Lord has invited me to sing a new song in my faith, to be swept up in something as I find myself often struggling to find sustenance in other things, being told by other sources in the world that sustenance can be found here or there Constantly reminded each time I come back to the song that Christ teaches me to sing that this is the place where water is found. This is the place where life is given, and this is the place that will guide me through even the hardest of days. And so Psalm 95 teaches us to sing that sort of song. As Helen alluded to earlier, we find ourselves at the end of a year Perhaps not a year in the one that we might be used to or accustomed to celebrating, but a year that is one of the church, a practice that has been celebrated for generations by the church known as the Christian calendar, one that invites us to tell both the story of Jesus beginning in the season of Advent through the story of Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and Easter that then would lead us to the second half of the year known as ordinary time, one in which we ask questions of who we are in the wake of this life of Jesus. So now we're here in the last day of the year known as Christ the King Sunday, the day meant to be a culmination of the journey that we've walked. But before we begin it again next Sunday with Advent. The text today proclaims something quite simple. 
but I find incredibly challenging for myself these days as God has claimed to be a great king above all other gods. God stands apart in character and vision for the world, not as a sort of king that would seek out conquest or injustice, but a sort of king that would envision love and peace triumphing over all that might weigh us down. So what is Christ the King Sunday? I was led with curiosity this week in my own preparation and found something interesting. A fact about this holiday that's celebrated by Christians all around the world, even today we would find in many churches around the world, people gathering around this idea of Christ's kingship. Established almost a century ago by Pope Pius XI, I think Pius is a pretty good name for a pope if you ask me who led the church during the late 19th century and early 20th century, declared in 1925 that the church would celebrate a new feast known as Christ the King, placing it at the end of what had been known as ordinary time. An astute observer of the world in which he lived, Pope Pius recognized that in this industrialized society, people were able to depend on themselves in a way unlike any time in history more frequently able to anticipate that needs would be met, able to anticipate their own livelihood in a way unlike people had ever done in society. Subsequently, communities became less dependent on things that once gave them security, things like one another, things like the seasons. In an industrialized world, things were able to be manipulated to a place where needs were met perhaps before we even knew we needed them. Communities became less dependent on one another, no longer needing the support of each other to meet their everyday needs. But even more so, communities were turning their allegiances away from that which so regularly bound them, their faith in Christ. Interesting how the advancement of our society, the reality of needs being met more regularly, has an impact on the way that we view our faith in everyday world. But in times of surplus, in times of bounty, even when we might resist the temptation, it impacts the way we view our relationship with Christ. An interesting commentary on an effect these have inevitably on who we understand ourselves to be and the role that we understand Christ to take in our lives. While we work hard for the things that we have, we think carefully about the way we spend our resources and we try so diligently to prepare for our futures. I fear this too often leads, myself included, to a faith that is more rooted in my accomplishments than anything else. And so this morning and this week, my prayer has been the prayer that Pope Pius prayed over the church almost a century ago and prayed that Christ would reign in our lives. That Christ would reign over all the things that perhaps might take that place on the throne. That Christ would reign over the things that would claw for that position in our lives, but also the things that if we're honest with ourselves, we give authority in our lives. So this morning as we read Psalm 95, we bring all of that 
to this song. We bring all of that to this song that was instituted in the worship book of Israel, known as the Psalms, that was intended to guide them as they navigated their everyday realities of life. So we're going to read from Psalm 95, starting in verse 1 down through 7a. And if you're able to, I invite you to stand with us as we read this psalm this morning. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And the dry land which his hands have formed. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Christ is king. A statement that we perhaps have said, maybe even we believe. But we've been preaching through the Psalms these past few weeks, and I've been reminded of something important. Been reminded by the Lord of the difference that it is to say something as it is to sing it. The Psalms, as I said, were the worship book of the people of Israel, filled with declarations that were to be sung in worship, statements of praise, affirmations of God's greatness and goodness, also laments, understandings of the pain that we feel in our everyday lives, questions of confusion. And everything in between, these words were meant to guide the people of Israel as they entered into God's presence on a regular basis. Now, I'm be the first to admit, well, maybe not the first, my wife would be the first to admit, that I'm not the best at giving over control of other things. That's not true, is it? No. Even when I'm teaching somebody a new skill, I contend if I don't watch myself, tend to hover over ready to jump in at the first sign of trouble. And I would say that's out of a deep care and conviction that that person learned that new skill, but I think those being taught would say the contrary. <laughs> but I often struggle to release the reins of control in areas of my life, things that I care deeply about. To simply say that Christ is king might satisfy a momentary expectation we might have of ourselves. But ultimately, as simply a statement fails to move us, to grip us, and guide us as circumstances change every day in our lives. But to sing something, to be swept up in its truth, breathing life into the places that we perhaps didn't even know we needed it, teaches us to loosen our grip and hand over control to the one who wants to guide our lives and teach us to be the people that we were always intended to be. And also, it's not something that can be stated once, for songs that are sung once are never really any good. 
but something that we return to regularly in anticipation that it, in its very singing, would open our eyes further and further to God's movement in our lives and in our world. And so as we hear this psalm, the Lord has been revealing to me how often I'm prone to read scripture with a certain rigidity, looking for a set of facts that I can accumulate and apply to my everyday life when I feel I need them. But the longer that I've followed Jesus, the more that I've come to learn of the dynamic nature of God's words spoken to us. Intended to breathe new life into every part of our world and our ever-changing circumstances that bring ultimate new questions, doubts, and uncertainties. One way that I've learned to do this is to let myself be swept up by scripture is through the use of artwork. Even the best art critics will tell you that while there are objective truths about art, whether they're good or bad, I know my art teachers definitely thought some of my art was bad, and they were very clear to say it, there's also a boundless nature to artwork that makes it so captivating. What one might see might be hidden from some others. And so ultimately, artwork begins, becomes this thing that we can revisit time and time again and teaches us something new when we approach it with honesty. And so I wanted to share a piece with you this morning. Beth, you can put that up. A stained glass window that was created by a 20th century Mexican artist named Efren Ordonez. And while I couldn't find the exact name of the art piece, I found that it was displayed now in Nuevo León in Monterey Seminary and displays for us Christ as king over all of creation. I spent my time reflecting on this art piece this week by myself, but also invited my small group into this process and was moved by the way that I saw things, but also the things that I could not have seen on my own. And so they take both uh, all the credit for all the things that are said. And if you have any questions, feel free. Brendan is anxious to answer any and all of your questions about this sermon afterwards. I noticed a few things about this art piece. Oh, sorry, Bob, I hit your music stand. I noticed a few things about this art piece that I think could reasonably be called Christ the King. Christ is very obviously a king wearing a crown. It seems to be ruling over a certain place that's very expansive, wearing a robe that would signify royalty. But there's other things I notice that are unique to this sort of king. This king's eyes are looking down, contain a humble spirit, not one of authority and injustice, but one of care and love. These hands are facing down, ready to dig their fingers into that which this king rules over. One thing that I thought was fascinating that I can't take credit for at all, but Jackson pointed this out, that the colors of the king are reflected in the creation. In the very kingdom that this king rules over, there is a similarity that's found between the two, as if to say that this kingdom stems from the very character and nature of this king. That this kingdom is reflective of who this king is. What do you notice about this? As you look at it, turn to a neighbor and share something you notice about this piece. 
that you like. You take them all. You can talk during church. I know maybe we have to give permission. What do you notice about this piece of art? What did you notice? Just say it. What did you notice? Is what? Yeah, there's love in there. What else do you notice? What? The halo? Yeah. This isn't any old king. This is a divine king. What else do you notice? Joel, what do you notice? I'm going to pick on you. Yeah, yeah. There's there, there's no partiality to the kind of things that this king is ruling over. It's expansive. It rules over all that is seen and unseen. I find artwork so important for me as I read scripture because it teaches me the boundless nature of things like simple statements: "Christ is." Ones that I can reduce down to a layer that cheapens them. Doesn't call me anywhere. Doesn't pull me. Doesn't tug at my heart in the way that perhaps scripture is always wanting to do. And so this practice, I invite you to just even in your own journey of faith. But thank you for sharing in this this morning. To the psalm, a few thoughts for us today. Psalm 95 has many movements and many thoughts that could be said about it, but I think very simply this morning I'd like to offer these. Verse 1 and 2, the worship leader approaches the congregation and teaches them to sing. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. This praise is to be enthusiastic. It's to be dynamic. It's to come from our very depths. Now, I don't always sing that way. Don't prescribe that everybody always has to sing that way. I know that I I used to feel this deep conviction that if I wasn't that person that was jumping up and down with my hands always up, then maybe I was doing something wrong. Don't hear me when I say this, that that's how everybody has to worship. You worship in the way that God has created you to, but simply to say that worship is to come from our very depths, to be enthusiastic in the sense that it is as honest as we could ever be. The type of worship, whether we find ourselves extroverted or introverted or somewhere in between, the worship that this worship leader calls the congregation to is one that is all-encompassing of those who would choose to engage. The word come is used over and over. Come, let us sing. Come into his presence, reminding us of our agency in this act of worship. Worship so often can be a very thing that we wait on for the Lord to do something. And say, Lord, when I hear you, then I will step into. But this worship leader reminds their congregation that worship is something that we enter into. That we choose to participate in And in that very choice and agency that we are given, God teaches us something. That God's movement waits for us sometimes to take that step of faith. And so I find singing such a good analogy for faith because singing requires repetition, practice, and is constantly growing 
Verse 3 through 5 tells us that this king rules over all things. The depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains, the sea that he made, and the dry land that he formed. An image that is captured so beautifully here that the reign of Christ is expansive. Kingdoms throughout history have been well-defined. Wars have been started over those very definitions, where lines are and where lines aren't. It's been very important for rulers throughout history to know where their kingdom starts and ends and for their people to know it. And so this king, this king comes into the world and says, there are no lines where my creation ends, but my reign that I long for. The rule that I hope to have in this world extends from the heights to the depths, from the sea to the land, and encompasses everything. If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we draw those lines for God. We say, God, I want you to be king in my life, but I want you to be king here. Here's where the the line begins and ends. I I don't want you to be king in here because maybe I don't believe that it's going to make a difference. I don't want you to be king in here because, God, I'm too embarrassed to admit that that thing exists in my life. Or, God, this, I, I can't let you be king here because it hurts too bad. Because it doesn't matter how much I believe you can heal, I, I just, I can't, I can't undraw that line, God. But this psalmist would invite their worshiping congregation to affirm that this king and his reign is boundless. Not just over all of the earth, not just to expand from the heights to the depths, but to extend into all areas of our very souls. From the places that we're willing to admit, but the places that we keep hidden. The places in our lives that we know God wants to move, but the places in our lives where we perhaps have convinced ourselves God can't work. And so to say Christ is king is an affirmation that invites us to be honest about the ways that we perhaps have drawn lines around God's kingdom for God. But who are the other gods that the psalmist mentions? It says that God is king above all gods. Now, historically, we know that Israel was greatly influenced by other nations around them, nations that worshipped other gods that had names, that had images attached to them, that were very concretely defined. We can see throughout history how people have been allured by different political leaders, different military threats or rules. Well, we can be honest about maybe those ways that kings manifest in our world. There's other more nuanced ways that perhaps in the modern world we don't give enough attention to. The subtle ways that our allegiance manifests to other things. Perhaps to our own accomplishments, our own pursuits, or our own visions of what the future should look like. I don't know what those other gods are that fight for your attention, but I know what they are for me. I know that in my saying of Christ is King, in my singing of it from my very depths, the Lord reveals to me the ways that I perhaps have given my allegiance to other things. Or perhaps the voices that constantly tempt and call for my attention. Whatever it is for you, we know, as Pope Pius acknowledged over a century ago, 
that in a world that was constantly about creating industrialization and meeting needs before we even knew we had them, in a world of comfort, in a world of plenty, that there would be many gods that would call for our attention. And so we as the church needed a day like this, one in which we would be honest with ourselves about the ways that we perhaps have given our attention and allegiance elsewhere. God is to be worshipped for, for the God who brought us into existence. The psalmist also reminds the worshipping congregation of the creation story. As he talks about this God who created all that is from the depths to the heights, the land and the sea, reminds them that this God created this world and signed God's name to it like any artist would. And God, in God's signing of God's own name, bound himself to it. Wanting to see this place flourish. And so as we look at this Christ as this king, we acknowledge that this isn't like any other king that we perhaps have been led to follow. That this king is one that desires reconciliation for all that pains this world. The psalmist ends this first stanza reminding the people that they are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. To be God's sheep reminds us of the sustaining nature of God's voice in our lives. Sheep can't flourish without the voice of their shepherd. So we must ask ourselves how we can truly sustain our lives without him. That maybe for a short time we can find sustenance elsewhere. Maybe for a short time we can find maybe momentary pleasure Maybe a sense of security, perhaps even salvation. But we know ultimately that those wells dry up. And so the psalmist would end this psalm by referencing back to Meribah and Massa, places of strife and toil. In Exodus chapter 17, a story in which Israel had been liberated from the desert or from Egypt, into the wilderness, led to the new life in the promised land. But they find themselves thirsty and they begin to complain, being quick to remind God that in Egypt, they had all that they needed. In Egypt, at least we had water to drink and food to fill our stomachs. But it is at Meribah and Massa, if you read the story, where Moses strikes the rock and water flows freely. A statement from God in the midst of Israel's sworn allegiance to the gods of Egypt. God says, if you were honest with yourself about the things that you have given your allegiance to, you would know that Egypt ultimately runs dry. That the well that you seek, the well that might give you water today, and maybe even tomorrow, and maybe the next day, will ultimately dry up. And so to say Christ is king acknowledges a lot of things for us. First and foremost, that there is only one well from which we can constantly find water. There is only one well that can constantly speak to the ever-changing realities of our lives, because there are some wells that maybe can speak today, 
maybe speak tomorrow, but as life changes, as our faith moves beyond simple statements and moves into songs, we need a deeper well. We need a king who will reign over all of it, who will reign from the heights to the depths, from the good to the bad, from the joyous to the painful. This liturgy calls the hearer to remember their duty to live in obedience to the words of the king and not pattern their life after their ancestors who rebelled against God in the wilderness. So as the band comes forward, we're going to receive communion this morning, a humble act of worship that invites us to affirm a few things. But before we say that, I'd like to read this, this prayer that Pope Pius XI prayed over the church almost a century ago as he recognized a deep need for an intentional acknowledgement that Christ indeed reigns over all places. He prayed this prayer, would Christ reign in our minds? Would Christ reign in our wills? Would Christ reign in our hearts? And would Christ reign in our bodies? If I could add one more to this, would Christ reign in all of it? Not simply the stuff that we're willing to acknowledge, but the deepest heartaches and pains, the uncertainties and the unknowing that we might experience tomorrow, that would Christ reign in all of it. And so here in a moment, we're going to invite the ushers, the servers, if you would come forward, get ready to serve communion. And I'll invite the ushers here in just a moment. We're going to try something that we've been trying the last few times just to help kind of bring some order. And so ushers will dismiss kind of one section at a time. Middle section, you'll come here to receive, and these two, you'll come over here, and over here, you'll come to these two. They'll dismiss you one at a time from the back row coming forward to walk up. You'll walk up and receive, and then walk all the way around back to your row, just so it keeps a little bit of order. Hold on to your elements and we'll receive together once this song is concluded. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he looked at his closest friends, at the people that had followed him for three years throughout his ministry and would carry on this vision of hope for the world. He instituted a feast that called them back to their moment of exodus. Intentionally reminding these disciples, remember when your ancestors called back to Egypt? Remember when your ancestors still laid claim to the other gods of the world? So too for them at that table, they were called to serve many. There were many voices calling for their allegiance in the world, and Christ came to them with this humble feast and said, if you let me be king in your life, I'll teach you the person that I have always intended you to be. I'll lead you to help restore and transform this world to be the kind of place that you could never envision on your own. So as we receive, communion calls us to an allegiance. 
Second, it affirms our need for God's nourishment in our lives. And third, it thanks God that there is a table that is always set for those who would seek him. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this meal that you have instituted, for this table that you have laid for us, that you invite us to so freely to come as often as we need because we know, God, that there's other tables out there that may seem like they're set with bounty, that may seem like a feast, but ultimately fall empty, ultimately run out, and ultimately fail us in the way that every king ultimately does. So Christ, as we receive this morning, your body and your blood, we trust that you will reign in our lives, in the places both we know we need you and even more so the places we have yet to know. Lord, we thank you for your church. And as we receive this morning, we humbly ask that you would see us for all that we are and all that we need.